You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 83. On this show, we tell the stories and strategies of everyday millionaires and unveil their current portfolio allocations. Last week on the show, we had Tim. Tim is a penny stock trader with a net worth north of $15 million. Tim discussed his strategy for penny stock investing, the classes he now teaches, and both how and why penny stock investing has been lucrative for him. A special thanks to our sponsor, Equity Multiple, for supporting today's episode. One of the tried and true paths to becoming and staying a millionaire is establishing passive income streams. Perhaps the most tried and true passive income channel for savvy investors is commercial real estate. Equity Multiple connects accredited investors with pre-vetted exclusive commercial real estate investments with investment minimums as low as $10,000. With Equity Multiple, you can allocate a meaningful portion of your portfolio to professionally managed commercial real estate and create a stronger and more diversified portfolio. Head to equitymultiple.com forward slash millionaires to learn more. Again, that's equitymultiple.com forward slash millionaires. If you'd like to be on our show as a millionaire or one who's close to being a millionaire, feel free to reach out to us. Our email is millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. We're thankful for all of those who have come on and shared their stories and their investment strategies. And we think that everyone has something to add to the show and that people are interested in both one story and their investments. So we're trying to capture both those pieces with this show. On today's show, we have Glenn. Glenn has a current net worth of about $5.5 million. He started out in college working in maintenance for apartment buildings. He now invests in apartment buildings and has had tremendous success doing so. He has a fascinating story of at one time being over-leveraged, buying a nice house and, and all the toys, and then as things got tight financially, he almost got caught. So Glenn unveils his story and investing portfolio and provides great advice and shares the mistakes he once made. So without any further delay, let's get into today's episode with Glenn. Glenn, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and kind of what you're up to now? Sure. Uh, so I've been in the multifamily space for about 30 years. I started off uh, kind of at the very beginning. I was a maintenance man. I uh, fixed toilets and painted apartments, picked up trash and you know did work orders. And that's kind of how I got into the multifamily business. I later realized that... Uh, Boy, it's cold outside and I have to carry heavy stuff and long hours and I sweat a lot. Uh, I like, wow, it's pretty cool. I want to be inside the office being a leasing consultant because they get to talk on the phone all the time and they make more leasing commissions. So talked to the boss and said, hey, I want to get in inside. And they didn't have any real openings at the time, but they said, uh, about, I don't know, about a year later, uh, they said, hey, we have one opening where we need a part-time manager and a part-time maintenance guide. It's only 60 units. And before they got done telling me what, you know, what they needed me to do, I'm like, I'll take it, you know, count me in because I was going to college at the time. And they, you know, they did that and it, it was a good experience. You know, I'd answer the phone, I'd lease an apartment, I'd sign a lease, collect the deposit, and then they'd go move in. And I said, I'll make sure you bring back this, this move in checklist, you know, that you got to do. Uh, and they said, Oh yeah, we'll fill it out. We'll bring it back. And they brought it back. And I told them, man, I don't know who did the, you know, got this apartment ready, but it, it's not doing so good. I'm like, well, what do you mean? Oh, one of the burners is broke. 
the toilet's kind of running a little bit, and the, you know, and and you know, just little things like that. Um, one of the windows doesn't open all the way, and the latch doesn't close. I'm like, oh, all right. And so they filled out their little make it make or their their little move in checklist, and they dropped it off at the office. And I showed up a couple hours later in my jeans and my toolbox, and they're like, well, what are you doing here? I thought you were the manager. I'm like, yeah, I'm also the maintenance guy. And they're like, oh, so you did all these repairs in here? And I'm like, yeah, I did those. So they're like, man, you're not a very good maintenance guy, are you? No, I'm not. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I quickly realized <laughs> that I'd much rather be leasing apartments and fixing stuff. But yeah, but it but it really taught me a pretty valuable lesson. You know, the, the people that are leasing the apartments, boy, they really depend on how well the moving experience is for these tenants and or these residents and and. And what a great team you have to be because there's no successful manager in there in the multifamily space without a successful maintenance guy. And, uh, and I learned that kind of firsthand. And, and then I went on to be a regional manager. Um, and then I went to, to Equity Residential, which is a big REIT in the Pacific Northwest. And my portfolio got larger and larger. And I worked for a tax credit property that built and developed tax credit units from the ground up. So I got very proficient at managing the Section 42 uh, properties uh, for this company as their director of operations. And I and, uh, really just had a lot of great experiences. You know, I did some fee management, some owner-managed, um, some tax credit management, and just kind of moved through the ranks. And then in the Pacific Northwest, I also got the opportunity to work for a company called Pacific Property Company. And they were based out of Palo Alto, California. And they uh, bought and fixed up apartment complexes on a, on a large scale. And they were very sophisticated, very aggressive, um, and put up a lot of money. And I learned a lot because I moved from the operational side, from the property management side, to the ownership side. And boy, you sure look at things a lot differently from the owner's perspective than you do from a property manager's perspective. And what a great experience that was. Up until the market started getting soft and started going down in 2008, 2009, eventually got laid off from that job because the company was not doing well, healthy, you know, but not because the company wasn't a great company, but just because the economy was, was so poor and vacancies were going up and people's investments were being lost and banks were going out of businesses. And we all recall what happened during that time period, right? As we all kind of went into that. So then I moved to Texas and. Uh, 2009 to come join as back into the property management field. And I was doing property management and, and at that time. And ironically, before I moved to, to Texas from Seattle, I had bought a few rental properties, my, you know, small ones, like single family homes and townhouses and stuff of that nature. But when the market crashed, I lost all my equity that I put down, all the down payment that I put down on all these homes and rentals and they were all, they, I had to sell them short sales, you know, so the, you know, I got dinged on my credit and I couldn't afford to bridge the gap between the rent. Some of them were vacant. And then my own personal house got foreclosed on. So when I moved from Seattle down to Texas, I had zero. All I could bring with me is what would fit on that U-Haul truck. And I just started over down here in Texas and uh, started getting back into property management once again. Uh, and, was it? I was the president of a management company, and I was doing fairly well. I was pretty successful at turning around troubled assets, and got a call from a bank that um, a business partner uh, mentioned that they didn't really want to purchase it, 
But the bank asked me on the management side, would you be interested in, you know, giving us a proposal? And I said, sure. You know, so I went out there and I looked at the problems that the property, properties have. And they had a lot of boarded up units, 50 units and, and, and such. And uh, I, tur- I turned around and told the management co- or the bank, I said, if you're going to really foreclose on this, you need to spend at least a million dollars in repairs. And they're like, are you kidding? I said, no, you got bad units that are boarded up. You're losing revenue. And in order for this to get to a proper cash flow, you need to spend that kind of money. Well, the bank said, well, we aren't really investors and we are going to foreclose. Last thing we want to do is turn around and put more money in the deal because we already lent out more and we're probably going to take a haircut. I said, well, if you're going to take a haircut, why don't you foreclose and carry a note back and I'll buy it. I'll put the million bucks in. And they're like, really? You do that? And I'm like, yeah. So I told them we would do that. And uh, I did not have a million dollars to put in this deal. Uh, and But that was the beginning. I started going around and raising money from individual people, moms, pops, Joes, anybody that I could talk to that had a little bit of money. And because people would ask me, well, Glenn, have you, have you done this before? I said, which part? Like, have you ever bought an apartment complex? And I said, no, I have not. Um, not, not to this scale anyway. And, and, and they said, well, what makes you think you're going to be successful? I'm like, well, I've been doing property management for, you know, 20 years. I get it. And I know that if we fix this up, it'll do well. So nine out of 10 people told me no, they wouldn't invest in the money, but they referred me to one or two other people. So the one guy that said, yeah, I'll go in. He put in some money. Then the other nine that said no, they referred me to some other people. And sure enough, one of those would would do it. Well, there came a time where I had about $700,000 raised. And I needed a million. And the bank says it's time to close. And they asked me to write a check for the loan commitment fee. And I only had about $70 in my checking account, my name. And... They asked for about $60,000. <laughs> I said, oh, my gosh. So I talked to my wife, Heidi, and I said, uh, honey, they want a commitment fee, and I have to write a check. And it's, she's like, well, that's going to drain our checking account. I says, yeah, I know. But we were all in. So if you could just imagine scooting all your chips into the middle of this poker table, we're all in. And uh, we finished raising the money, closed on that loan, uh, bought that property, fixed it up. And sold it a year later, and the investors got a 48 IRR on that deal. And at that point, I made enough. My own my own take on that was about four times what I would make working for a year from my last company. So if you can imagine, uh, that was a big check. I replenished my checking account. I'm like, wow, that's most money I've ever made. So at that point, all in, right? It's like, hey, let's go buy some more apartment complexes, fix them up and sell them. And that was the first one in Texas. And that was about five and a half years ago. And we have since purchased 23 apartment complexes, about $258 million, and have already begun exiting those deals and returning money back to the investors. So it's been a, it's been a pretty good run. Part of that's the economies and in, in doing very well in Texas. Part of it's been doing it for 30 years. And I've got an eye for a good deal or a bad deal. And I just know how to fix things up. And because I managed properties myself, I know the difference between a good manager and a bad manager. And I clearly know the difference between a good maintenance guy and a bad maintenance guy because I was the bad one. So, 
I kind of learned along the way. And that was kind of an introduction to last several years of my life and kind of brings us to this podcast today. So thanks for allowing me to be part of this. I'm uh, sitting today at about 5.4 million on my net worth and I'm liquid about three of that right now. And I have about another 10 apartment complexes yet to sell. So I'll be adding probably a couple more million dollars to my net worth in the next nine to 10 months. And what was it when you moved down from Seattle? How much, how much did you lose? Um, well, I lost everything that I had saved. So I had, I had four rental houses and then my own personal home and I lost all of those. So when I moved from Seattle to Texas, I had zero dollars. I rented a small 1200 square foot home. Um, and I drove whatever didn't fit on the U-Haul. I didn't bring because I really couldn't afford two U-Hauls or a U-Haul and a trailer. So it was really kind of, kind of sad, actually. You know, everything that I'd been working for when things were going really, really well, uh, all came crashing down on me. If you don't mind, I'll share with you why that happened, I think. And that's because I had lived beyond my means. I, um, I had a, a big home and I had, a, you know, two decent cars and were both financed. Uh, we had a nice boat, 28 foot cruiser that we enjoyed going out on the Puget Sound financed. We had a motorhome that we liked to go camping in and take our dirt bikes out. Uh, that was financed. Uh, and, you know, and I used my credit cards in between. So when I got laid off my job, there was no way in the world I could afford to make my debt payments. And so I kind of put myself in that situation, to be honest with you. Looking back on it, the way my wife and I live today, we live vastly different than we did back then. We stay out of debt, can't afford it, we don't buy it. We, we learned the difference between needs and wants. And uh, just because we know the difference now, we can go without some things that we used to think we really needed and we really don't. Um, if it's a want, we call it a want and we pay cash for it. So I don't know if that answered your question, but. <laughs> no, no, totally. And it's an amazing story. And, and we appreciate you being honest and open from it. And I think other, other people will benefit as well. When you moved down to Texas, did you think about getting into something different? Was there anything that you kind of had like a bad taste in your mouth from real estate and, and thought, hey, maybe I should shift gears here and try something different? Or how come you went back into real estate? Well, that's a great question. Um, when I was younger, I would say about 25 years old, it was that time that I was a property manager and the maintenance guy. And that 60-unit apartment complex, I got to know lots of folks in the neighborhood and somebody came to me and said, Hey, you're in, you're in property management and real estate. How would you like to buy my house? I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, I, I built a home and I haven't sold this other one yet. You're in the rental business. Maybe you should buy it and rent it out. And I went and looked at his house. I'm like, wow, this would make a great rental. Uh, and I did not really know how I was going to buy this house. But back in those days, they had these things called simple assumption loans where you could just assume somebody else's loan. So he had one of those and I was going to assume it. So I, I called my mom and my mom, I felt this great rental property and uh, we should go in halves. It'll be great. And she's like, how much do you need? And I said, I need about $12,000. She's like, total? I'm like, yeah, $12,000 total. So she's like, okay, six for me and six from you. I'm like, exactly. So she's like, all right, I have $6,000. I said, well, mom, about my $6,000, 
I need to borrow it from somebody. I <laughs> don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't have that kind of money. So she's like, well, I don't have that kind of money either. So she's like, but I have a credit card that you can do a cash advance on. And I don't recommend this to anybody, by the way. So you can maybe delete this off the podcast. But anyway, I borrowed my mom's $6,000. I put the other $6,000 on a credit card. I rented it out and it did great. Made the mortgage payment and it also covered the credit card payment. Had about $100 left over. I'm like, this is great. Well, about two years later, that renter moved out and I panicked. And my mom, the renter moved out. My mom panicked. She's like, what are you going to do? How are you going to make the credit card payment? I said, why don't we just sell this sucker? So we sold it and we made, my mom made, she got, we, I gave her back her $12,000, right? Paid off the credit card and gave her back her six. And then she made another $25,000 and I made $25,000. And she thought that was the coolest thing in the world. So for me, when you're in college, to make a, a check that big on, on one deal where, you know, I didn't really have to come out of pocket very much at all. And I just knew it was a good rental property. I knew back then that you can make a lot of money in real estate. I just didn't know how. And that was on one house. And I was hooked back then. I was in my 20s. So to answer your question, when I moved from Seattle and I kind of lost my shorts in, in real estate, I knew it wasn't really anything I did wrong. It was the economy had changed, you know, and the, and the market had crashed. I can't control that. But I knew that if I played my cards right and I find the right deal, you can still make a lot of money in real estate, like a ton of it. And you just got to buy it right, fix it up right, raise the rents and sell it right and finance it correctly. But I learned all that along the way. So Sure, sure. Uh, yeah. And, so, and some of those failures then contributed now to, to what's been success, right? Some of those lessons learned. So are you invested in anything but real estate? Do you have anything in the market? So I am a part owner of a landscape company. And I'll tell you a little bit about that little landscape company. It's up in DFW. And because I had, you know, 10 apartment complexes up there, I had two or three different commercial landscape companies providing services for my apartment complexes. And Mike introduced me to uh, his friend, Steve. And he's like, his, Steve runs a landscape company, but he's not an owner. He just runs it. He's an employee. And so Mike and Steve and I said, hey, if I give you 10 apartment complexes as a as a way to start, would you like to, to be partners on a landscape company? He's like, yeah. So we're a third, a third, a third on, on this landscape company. And that went from about, you know, uh, 2000 units or 10 apartment complexes. So they were each about 200 units each, uh, up to he now mows and trims and does all kinds of landscape for about 75,000 apartments up in DFW. And he's already landed contracts that'll get him over a hundred thousand units. So that I'm vested in. So, and I get a little bit, uh, from that company, but that's a recent thing. So, you know, when you're an entrepreneur and you think, think about, you know, your core business, which my core business is apartments, um, uh, you know, there's other little things you could do along the way. I also am a real estate licensed broker and I've been a broker for you know, 15 years, uh, no longer than that, 20 years now. And my wife, uh, we'll go down to the auction and buy houses, fix them up and sell them. And since I'm a broker, we'd put them on the MLS and sell them. And she'll do three or four of those a year. And she really enjoys that, but it produces nice little income too. Um, and, and I also have another company called Garage Floors and More, which does custom garage floors for rich people that have fancy garages. They put in fancy garage floors and cabinets and car lifts and stuff like that. And 
I'm just a small percentage owner of that as well. So kind of learning that if I could find little companies that do well, I don't have to be a majority owner in it to do well. I can have a little piece of this company, a little piece of that company, a little piece of that company, and they all feed me. So, you know, if I get fed by four or five different little companies along the way, that's a nice little living. And yeah. I don't have to work for the rest of my life. So, yeah. So nothing invested in the equity markets? I don't do anything in the equity markets. That's a great question. So, And, and has it always been that way? It's always been that way. I have. I don't know anything about it. Um, I haven't really tried to learn it. I've tried to be very, very proficient at multifamily and real estate. And that's where I spend my time and energy and I haven't really studied up on how to trade or which stocks to buy or which ones are performing well. So, gotcha. Yeah. So when you, when you first started down there and bought that first, what was it, 100 unit, the, the one that was boarded up? Oh, yeah, it was a 200 unit. 200 mm-hmm. unit. How did you get the loan on that if you, if you didn't have the balance sheet? Did you kind of use it from, from some of the investors that were putting in money? Or how did you kind of get financing on some of these early buildings, early properties? You know, it was, I was just bold. Uh, the, the bank that approached me that was getting ready to foreclose on that apartment complex, uh, when I knew that they were going to foreclose, I asked them, if I put a million dollars in fixing it up, will you carry a note back for me? And they said, yes, we will. So, uh, you know, they were already a lender. They were already a bank. And they thought, here's a guy that if he screws up, at least he's putting a million dollars in our apartment complex and <laughs> we'll keep it. We'll foreclose on him, too. So the bank just said, yeah, we'll carry a note. They gave me 24 months, I think it was, uh, a note at 4% interest. So I, you know, interest only for those 24 months. So that's how I got my first loan. That's awesome, Glenn. So <laughs> you've gone from nothing to making it to losing it to making it big again. Where do you mm-hmm. kind of go from here over the next five to 10 years? Do you have a certain net worth goal or a certain amount of apartment doors that you want to get to? Kind of where do you use your business going to head and where are your investments going to head now? Yeah, great question. Um, I consulted with my wife and she and I have a business plan to put together when I want to retire, but I want to have a $10 million. Um, that we own either in assets or liquid or a combination of both. And we are going to go full speed ahead until we get to that number. So I will, the the business that makes the most amount of money for me is to buy and sell these large apartment complexes. So the largest one I bought was a 650 unit deal. And I'll share with you just some of the particulars on that one. We put down, we invested 5% of it. So we paid 34 million or something like that for it and recently sold it. And, uh, my promote, um, was about $1.2 million on that deal that I split with a business partner. And then the investors got about a 32 IRR on their investment on that. And they were 95% of the equity in that deal. So if I can go and put more of those deals together, then and, and really only have to do about 10 or 15 more and I'm and I'm there. Don't even have to do that many actually. I'll continue to put deals together. For example, I've got an offer right now on 140 units uh, up in Fort Worth and it closes in 30 days and we've raised probably two thirds of the equity already from private individuals and that one will be a good deal. We'll hold that one for about three years and got a Fannie Mae loan on that deal. So I'm still pretty active in the multifamily syndication business, but that's going to be my train that I'm going to use to, to retire on. And 10 million is my number. It's a great number. So 
being a real estate investor, especially a syndicator, you usually have to have some sort of liquidity. Has there been kind of a benchmark that you try to maintain in your personal life to be able to go after these deals in case you do need to put up personal capital? Do you, do you maintain a 10% or 15% or 20% liquidity at all times? I do. You know, I started off with about a 10% and now it's about 15%. So I don't, I just leave that, that liquid cash in my personal checking account. And it's been sufficient enough. Uh, there's only been one time where I've had to actually borrow one of my investors balance sheet and who signed on the loan with me. And that was that 650 unit deal where I had to borrow 30 million because I wasn't quite there yet at that time in my career. Um, so I think it'd be pretty close today, but uh, back then I couldn't. So that's what I do. Yeah. Keep 10 to 15%. Liquid. Yeah, that's great. And will that kind of, as, as you get closer to retirement, do you think that you'll kind of stay around that number or will you adjust that number? I mean, you said you like to live debt free. So assuming all your personal assets are, are paid off and stuff, do you kind of say, Hey, I can play a little bit more risk. I don't need to maintain that much liquidity as I get closer to retirement or kind of what's your mindset there? Yeah, great question. Well, my wife and I have already paid off our house. Uh, we have a hundred acres that we paid for free and clear. All of our vehicles are paid for. Um, and so we're, we're already kind of out of the, the risk phase in our life, which means that right now I still, uh, maintain a little bit of liquidity just because I've, I haven't really found a lot of deals to invest in. Uh, it's getting more and more difficult. And, you know, I'll look at 20 or 30 of them and, and only really put offers out on maybe two or three of them. And so I'm sitting on a little bit of money. Um, my wife and I are going to diversify a little bit. She asked me the question, what happens, Glenn, if, if, you know, some freak accident, you pass away? She said, I don't know anything about syndications or multifamily. I, you know, my wife's great at flipping houses. So what we've decided is we're going to take some of our cash and actually go pay cash for some rental houses, some single family homes, because in the event that my, my wife or that I pass away, my wife can manage 10 houses pretty easily because she was also a property manager and she's been in real estate as well. And, you know, if we collect, you know, $2,000 in rent on 10 houses, she can live on that, not to mention our other assets that we already have. So um, we're kind of diversifying a little bit and I've gotten some criticisms from some of my financial advisors that said, you know, why would you do that? You can leverage some of those homes at low interest rate. You can buy more of them if you don't pay cash for all of them. And then some have said, why don't you just take all that money and dump it in multifamily and make like you're making for your investors, which I do. I do participate in that a lot. But I guess it's for my wife's security that she feels comfortable that if we had 10 rental houses that were paid for free and clear, she could manage those and not really have to depend on other people. Sure. Do you use a financial advisor? I haven't yet, but I'm beginning to think I need one. <laughs> I've talked to people that are, you know, well to do and that uh, give me advice, you know, friendly, friendly advice, but they're not real professional financial advisors or tax advisors. And, you know, and I have gotten a little creative and started a, you know, a captive insurance fund along the way and did some 1031 exchanges on some of my, you know, sold assets. And so I'm, I'm trying to protect my liquidity as best I can. But at the same time, I'm also one of those guys that I'll pay my taxes and go on to the next deal. So. Sure. 
So how do you expect to find these deals going forward and, and how have you found them historically? Are these through relationships with brokers? Are they on the MLS or just yeah. how do you find those deals? Uh, well, so out of the 23 apartment complexes that I purchased over the last six years, five and a half, six years, um, half of them came just through relationships. And I'll give you a couple of examples. There was a gentleman that um, his name is Ed. He lived up in the Pacific Northwest, but he owned eight apartment complexes in in Dallas. And about, gosh, 15 years ago, he and I met, became friends. We stayed in contact. And I told him, I says, hey, Ed, when, whenever you get ready to retire, you should call me. You know, the guy was 70 years old. Um, and he's like, I'll never retire. Well, he said that until he got sick on one of his biking expeditions that he was on out of the country and he got he got nervous. So he called me. He's like, you know, I may take you up on that offer. How? What would you think about buying my properties from me? And I said, Ed, I'd like to buy them from you. So I said, I'll pay a fair market value for them. And so he went, he went and got broker price opinions, and so did I. And then we had them appraised, and we shook hands. And we said, let's let's do this. And we came to a price that he was happy with and I was happy with. And we bought eight apartment complexes um, over the course of six months from this one seller. And they were very, very successful. I had an insurance agent that, you know, he insured several apartment complexes, mine and other people's. And he and I got to be pretty good friends. His name is Jason. And Jason once told me, he's like, I got this one client that apartment complex. It's 327 units in San Antonio, Texas. And I think he's in over his head. And, you know, he, he's been talking to me about selling his apartment complex, you know, for the last six months. So Jason introduced me to this owner and the owner and I went to lunch and I asked him, you know, tell me about your apartment complex. And he told me. And he had a partnership that, you know, he didn't want to be in any longer. And he was kind of managing it himself and not doing a very good job. But I I told him what I would pay for his apartment complex. And he said, well, that sounds fair. We shook hands. And then I, because I'm a broker, I wrote up the purchase sale agreement. We closed on it, paid $7.7 7 I think, for it. And then put in another $2 million fixing all of his problems. So I was in it like $9.7 I think. And then we sold it for $14 million, uh about two years later. So that was an off-market deal uh, and through a relationship. But then I also worked directly with brokers. They, you know, the brokers, they they know that if you're buying and the kind of product that you're buying, they'll, they'll call you on the phone and they're like, hey, Glenn, I got a deal for you and I'll look at it. And most of the time I'll pass, you know, because the brokers all think they're worth a lot more than they really are. <laughs> every, once in a while, every once in a while, I'll come across one. I'm like, yeah, this one's really broken. And it's really been mismanaged. And, you know, the in-place rents are, you know, only 87 cents a square foot. And the market's buck 20. Like, I can, I'll buy that. And uh, and I bought probably six, seven, maybe 10 deals from brokers, actual brokers that are multifamily guys. You know, the ARAs, the Marcus Millchaps, the HFF, and, you know, all the IPA, uh, you know, CBRE. I work with all of them. Do you buy any out of state or, or have you tried to stay in state and local? Um, I bought one out of state and I didn't do very well on it. Um, my business partner at the time thought it was a great deal in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And, and he thought, well, we already got the debt and equity lined up. Let's go for it. And I'm like, dude, I don't know that we can really exit this deal because it's right on the edge of a tough property, tough area, but it was a great looking property and we dumped a bunch of money and fixing it up and we weren't able to raise any of the rent. So that one we didn't do so well on. So. I'm now a little leery to step outside of my comfort zone. So I'm, I'm a Texas guy. 
you know, I've got stuff all over the place in Texas, Colleen, San Antonio, Dallas, Fort Worth, you know, Lake Jackson, south of Houston, you know, down in that area. So I'm all over the place. Um, it makes sense, but it's a good economy. And I'm just going to stay local. Haven't had much luck out of state. Glenn, what do you think, you know, obviously you started with that initial story where, where you feel like maybe you were living above your means. Is there anything else perhaps specific to real estate investing where, you know, lessons you've learned or mistakes that you've made along the way? Yeah, that's a great question too. Um, you know, the financing of these multifamily deals is very uh, critical to their success. You know, when I bought that 650 unit deal, I got a Fannie Mae loan and it was a fixed Fannie and it was a 10 year note, right? And it had yield maintenance on there. Uh, and when I got ready to sell that in you know three years, I still had seven years of yield maintenance on it. So in order for me to sell that deal, either the person buying it had to assume my loan or I had to pay that yield maintenance that, you know, this, I'll call it a prepayment penalty or, you know, um, defeasance. But it cost me $3.8 million out of my pocket just to sell the deal. So, you know, there's different loan programs that as you become a little more sophisticated, if you're going to exit a deal uh, and you know you're not going to hold it long term, you know, you can get a floater um, in interest rate and, and pay caps on that. Or you can get a bridge loan, you know, that's not as expensive to get out of, you know, uh, because their whole idea is to get in and get out. So, you know, I learned that along the way. You know, the financing is pretty critical. And you just got to be able to run the numbers and determine which ones are going to be the best deal for your business model. If you're going to sit on it for 10 years and 15 years and that's your business model, then yeah, go get a go get a fixed, you know, Fannie loan or a Freddie loan and just sit on it. Because they're better interest rates. So anyway, I kind of learned that that lesson along the way. I don't know if that answered your question or not. Yeah, um, yeah. And and related to financing, what LTVs are typically on your properties? Is that something you're aggressive with, or do you try to raise a little bit more of, of equity? You know, on average, they're about seventy five percent leveraged. Um, okay. So we'll come in twenty five, you know, percent. Now there's some some that are really broken where I can get, you know. You know, 75% of the purchase price and 75% of a maintenance or the rehab. So those bridge lenders are pretty good, but I'm not going to be in them a long time. I'm just going to juice the NOI, raise, you know, raise the rents and the performance and then fix all the deferred and you know, renovate some of the interiors and then and get out of it. Yeah. Um, but most of them are, you know, 75% right now. Um, some, and those rates are going down, by the way. You know, I mean, people are now saying, we're getting quotes at 65 or 70 percent leverage. So even the lenders, I think, are starting to realize that, you know, where are we in the cycle and, you know, are we getting to the top? Because they're, they're in my opinion, becoming a little more conservative because I've had notes as high as 80 percent hmm. from, you know, Fannie, you know, lender loans and, and bridge loans have gone up to 85 percent on some of these you know deals that I have. But I'm not seeing those anymore. Yeah. Do you ever have any problem selling these properties? You know, if there's not much meat left on the bone, is it is it hard to get rid of them? Well, I I only renovate half the property. I mean, I, I solve 100% of the deferred maintenance on the outside and common areas. But on the interior, I only renovate 50%. So once I prove that we're getting a good rent bump and, you know, we'll spend, uh, I'll be pretty open with you, we'll spend $6,000, $7,000 on an interior and we'll raise it you know, 125 to $150 in rent, right? And once I prove I can do that, 
you know, if you've only renovated 50%, you can put it on the market and there's a lot of other value got value add guys that'll come in and like, I'll just finish that whole plan and take it to the next level. I have not had any problems selling any of my assets uh, in the last two years. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Just before we la- wrap up here, let's uh, jump into some, some millionaire rapid fire questions. So the most expensive jeans or, or pair of pants you've ever purchased? <laughs> uh, I don't buy jeans. My wife buys them. And I $200 <laughs> for my jeans. I would never pay that much for a pair of jeans. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a cheap boy. I could wear the same pair of jeans all year long, and she just laughs at me. Yeah. Now, hers, I know I've seen some bills of three or $400 for a pair of jeans, and I just shake my head at her. So, <laughs> Okay, most expensive shoes? Um, my, uh, I'm wearing a 400 pair of, $400 pair of boots right now. They're uh, the Tabacas. They're handmade here in Austin, leather boots. All right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, most expensive car. Oh goodness, that's a bad one. Um, so probably two days ago, I put an offer on a, a Mercedes S five sixty. So it's uh, it's gonna run me hundred grand per car. But and it's cash. I, it's cash, you know. And I'm trading in a. I'm trading in my. I have a BMW seven series that I'm trading in for that. So. I don't know why I'm going from a BMW to a Mercedes, but I am. But my truck, you know, I got a truck that's a, uh, it's a Dodge Ram 2500 and it has an eight and a half inch lift on it. So the suspension on that's probably $30,000, <laughs> I think, on my truck. <laughs> I rarely drive. So that's embarrassing to say, but yeah. Okay. Uh, most expensive meal out that you've paid for? Mm. So I took about, I don't know, five or six friends out to a restaurant, and I think I dropped four grand at dinner, you know, on them. That's probably the most expensive dinner I ever bought. So, Okay, what item or items or experiences are, are worth spending more money on to you? Well, um, you know, I've built a pretty good little team here of folks that helped me run my little company, asset managers and an acquisition manager. And recently, I said, you guys have done a great job. I would like to take you and your spouse uh, on a crew, on a seven-day cruise. And and I want to upgrade you and your spouse to a suite on the cruise ship. And so that, that cost me a little bit of money. And while I was there, I gave them each a pair of Ray-Ban sunglasses. And I told them that their future looked really, really bright and that they're going <laughs> to you know, and when I look at the excursions that we did on the cruise and just paying for the cruise and those little gifts, to me, you know, I might have spent, you know, $35,000, um, but I think I got far greater value out of some loyal, loyal team players that have, that like working with me and around me and um, will follow me, you know, in the future as well. Yeah. And that, How many people are on your team? Well, here at the corporate office, you know, we had um, seven of us um, at one time, but we've reduced that staff because we've sold some of ours, but we haven't terminated any of them. Um, they all kind of left on their own. So, gotcha. yeah, but I also have a, I had a property management company because we were up to 6,000 units, I think, under management. And so I owned a property management company as well, and it had 140 employees. Wow. And I would throw some pretty nice parties for that group too. Paid for by the properties, of course, but, um, 
but we would we would pull them together and I'd give away thousands of dollars worth of gifts and TVs and stuff like that. And so I'm really big into team building events and to teach and train. Uh, I really being a maintenance guy, I, I offer to pay for any of my maintenance guys that want to get their HVAC certification or a pool certification. And I'm like, look, if you want to go do that, uh, I want to encourage you to do that. But some of those maintenance guys don't have the money to pay for it. And, and I, and I offer to pay for it. And then when they're done, I give them, you know, a raise in pay because in my opinion, they're more educated. And that kind of stuff goes a long, long ways with, with people. You know, it, I, I do believe that this is a people business. I also believe that people are more important than money. So I would much rather lose money. You know, people say that they have money, but I've had zero before. But I, I would rather have a good relationship with people um, and make sure that they feel that they're more important than the dollar. And yeah. that's a big part of my life. Have you had any favorite books or tools or websites that have really helped you? I like all those little self-help books. You know, I, I read Who Moved the Cheese. Um, That's a great little book. There was another one called Zap that teaches you how to, you know, uh, empower your team members. And I've, you know, asked, I've given that book to a lot of my team members. I recently read the book, the book that's your one word. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I'm now writing my own book uh, called Maintenance Man and Millionaire. <laughs> it's about halfway done. So it's a lot about the same story. So, Glenn, going, going through everything that you've experienced and the ups and the downs, how do you maintain motivation to kind of get where you want to go? Are you a goal setter? Do you have certain things that, that you focus on on a daily basis to get where you've gotten? Yeah. You know, um, I have heard that some of the common denominators in, in a lot of wealthy people is that they're always, always reading books. So I do read books, um, and I enjoy that. Uh, I also set goals on a regular basis. I have hanging right by my desk a dream board that has, you know, six specific goals. And, and, and some of them are personal, some of them are health, some of them are wealth, but it's hanging right by my computer screen. And then right next to it, I have another little sign that says, don't get distracted by the things that have nothing to do with your goals. Because, that's my weakness. Sometimes I tend to start focusing on things that really don't have anything to do with the goals that I've set for the year or the month or even this week. And so I have to constantly remind myself to stay focused and, and to work on the actual goals. But I'm very much goal driven and I write them down and I, you know, and I talk about them throughout the year and the months and the weeks and I share them with other people and, and, and they follow up with me, you know, on how your goals come and go. And that's very helpful. To me. I found that I really lack uh, self-discipline and maybe other people think that I'm very self-disciplined when they look at from the outside in. But when I look within myself, I, I feel like it's a weakness, not a strength. Yeah, I think accountability, I mean, just in general, propels people to, to be extraordinary, right? So yeah. getting getting that accountability from somebody else, even, even if you have a lot of self-discipline and a self-drive, that accountability is always going to going to push you to even go farther than you're going, you know, yeah. without it. So just to wrap up here, if somebody wants to get into real estate, maybe they want to get into multifamily or, or anything that, that maybe has piqued their interest in this interview that you've done, where would where would you advise them to start? Would you advise them to, to kind of go back and maybe start on the maintenance side or the leasing side or where's kind of the best place to kind of get their their beak wet in terms of multifamily? Yeah, that's a great question. 
Well, I think the thing that's benefited me the most is that I've touched so many different parts of the business. You know, I know syndicators uh, that have never leased or never been a maintenance guy and they depend on other people to, to inform them, which is okay to do. Um, but if you can get firsthand experience in any part of the business, uh, I would encourage people to do that. You can still be an investor and still learn some of the, you know, the nuts and bolts of the business. But if somebody wanted to get into multifamily and you really don't know where to start, uh, if you don't want to be a limited partner or just a passive investor and you want to be more active, I would suggest you start with, uh, you know, somebody who has really done it before and, and go find a good deal. And, you know, because deals are hard to find, find a good deal and then bring it to any syndicator and say, do you want to partner with me on this deal? And you can just be open with them. I want to learn the business. You're an expert at it, but I'm not, but I want to learn everything that you've done. I want to shadow you and I want to be your partner. And if you do that, I want to, you know, you could, you could take some of the profits and I'll take some of the profits. And, you know, there's some people that'll be willing to do that and some that won't, but I think that would be a very safe place to start. You know, ask somebody that's an expert and, and partner with them and learn from them. And then when you've done one or two, you might be more inclined to do one on your own. Glenn, where can people find out more about you or get a hold of you? So I'll give you two places. First, you can uh, go to our website, uh, which is obsidiancapitalco.com. So obsidiancapitalco.com. Or, or my email is glenn with two N's at obsidiancapitalco.com. Perfect. And, uh, yeah, I'd love to chat with anybody. I love to mentor, love to chat with folks. And uh, I think it would be a lot of fun to meet a bunch of new people as well. Awesome. Glenn, with a net worth of north of $5 million, from maintenance man to millionaire, thanks for coming on the show today. Loved it. Thank you. I appreciate it. This has been really fun. And hopefully all your listeners have enjoyed it as well. Thanks, Glenn. All right. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled Podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.